Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Karen Henson. What's up? Hey, Karen. Yeah. Do you understand the Trinity? Oh, gosh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Not even a little bit. Well, well, then you're in luck because today we're talking to Dr. Scott Harrell from Dallas Seminary, and one of the primary emphases of his academic career has been the Trinity. Praise God. So let's see if he can provide some clarity. (laughs) We hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Today, we are going to talk about the early church and not just the early church, but primarily what was the early church going through from a doctrinal standpoint in regard to the person of Jesus, the person of the Holy Spirit? How did the church come to believe in what we now hold as Orthodox Trinitarian doctrine? But before we get into that, we are privileged to have the Dr. Scott Harrell in the studio with us today. He got his Master's of Theology and a Doctorate in Theology at Dallas Seminary and is currently a professor there of theological studies. Um, I took Dr. Harrell's Trinitarianism class when I was a student there, which was a long time ago. You, if you're, well, you can't see me, but I have gray hair. But one of the things that I love, I mean, I go through all of his academic accolades and all that stuff, but probably the biggest thing I love about Dr. Harrell is he's been a missionary all over the world. Actually, we were talking before we went live. We're just like, wait, have you written books like in other languages? <laughs> you know, and the answer is yes. Um, so he's been a missionary all over the world and, and is a pastor and uh, is not just one of these ivory tower guys that just does academic work and doesn't relate to people, but really is in the trenches with people. And I've always respected that, that about you, Dr. Harrell. So welcome. We're glad you're here. It is a delight uh, and uh, an honor to be with you. Yeah. Nathan. I you. love it. So tell us a little bit about how did you get here? You know, your your family, what are some things you've got going on right now? Well, long, long ago, born in a place called Ephrata in Washington State. It looked like Bethlehem. Somebody named it that about a century ago. Nice. And uh, grew up kind of between farm and other places. Uh, did school in Seattle. Began to go out to different parts of the world. YWAM into the Caribbean, Trinidad and Tobago, uh, with Indians on Vancouver Island with a different group and uh, different places. and. More and more, the Lord was uh, moving us toward toward missions. Mm. Went through DTS, Dallas Seminary, and we wondered where in the world to go. Brazil had so many missionaries already, but my wife had had a couple years there. Her folks were there as missionaries in the huge city of Sao Paulo. And uh, that finally won out, surprisingly. Mm. Now, what, you've got 5,000 missionaries already? What should I, why should I go there? But, but we went to the far south, the European south, and uh, began a church planting, and that evolved into teaching at several schools. I was head of theology at the, the large Baptist Theological Seminary of Sao Paulo. We launched a journal. It became the largest Protestant journal in Latin America. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, I think had significant influence uh, throughout the country. So, uh, there comes a time when missionaries need to get out of the way. Mm. Brazil had come of age, and while the welcome was still there, it was time we sensed it. Time to move on. Yeah, yeah. so thank yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, so, I've been to Dallas Center ever since, <laughs> launching into Africa from that. And uh, various places too. I love it. So I thanks. love it. Yeah, thanks. that's that's great. Well, one of the great things is, as uh, I said, I took his Trinitarianism class, and that's that is one of your uh, kind of subject specialties. So today we're going to just talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. What did that look like in becoming what it is today? And so I think a great place to start is just first century Judaism. I mean, uh, when you read the Old Testament. 
obviously you see a people who are devoted to God as God had revealed himself to them through the patriarchs and the Exodus and and then um, uh, through the, the prophets and the kings and, and through all of that, you see, especially in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, this famous Shema and Shema is just the word to hear. So hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And so you have these really strictly monotheistic people in the first century. So un- unpack that for us, Dr. Rell. What would a first century common Jew, what would that person have believed about God? You have a lot of pieces coming together with that, uh, even going back to that, because Muslims often cite that as saying, your God can't be Trinity, mm-hmm, right. because he's one. Echad, the Hebrew term, comes from the root, a kind of a plural collective togetherness one. That doesn't, you know, it's like English one. We mm-hmm. come together as one church. Adam and Eve were one flesh, same, same terminology. So uh, there wasn't a sense of, when we say monotheism, at the same time, that isn't too tight. Mm-hmm. As we come down through the centuries, of course, Israel was carried away with some idolatry and was sent to, uh, into their exile in Babylon, came back much more rigidly monotheistic. But even in there, in the Old Testament, whether post-exilic or prior to that, you've got, you've got divine agents. You've got strange terminology going on, like, uh, let us create man in our own yeah, image yeah. and things like that. You've got the word of God. You've got the spirit of God. You've got mm-hmm. the wisdom of God. You've mm-hmm. got the angel, angel of, of God. Of the Lord, yeah. You've yeah. got the Messiah. Here's mm-hmm. Isaiah before the exodus or the exile. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, El Gibor, Mighty God. That phrase is only used one other place in the Old Testament. That's a chapter later in Isaiah 10. That's mm-hmm. Isaiah 9, 6, what mm-hmm. I just quoted. But who is this child born, this human being, the government will be on his shoulders. Uh, it's the Davidic promised person, and yet, mm-hmm. and yet, mighty God, how does that work? So as we come into the first century, you've got, you've got ambiguity around, around the one God they worshiped. Mm-hmm. So uh, let me say this. Recent scholars like Daniel Boyarin, Benjamin Summer, and others, these are rabbinic, Jewish scholars are saying, hey, the idea of this Jesus being called God was part of the mix. There, there was a large plurality of understandings in the first century. You have apocryphal works like First Enoch, Third Enoch, and other places that also, like that son of man who comes before the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, they expanded that. Here is this other divine figure giving mm-hmm. glory and honor and an eternal kingdom. Yeah, authority to judge yeah. the nations. Yeah. Yep. And, and yet God doesn't give his glory to another. There's mm-hmm. no God before me or after me. Mm. So, so it was a little more flexible than a lot of people think today. Yeah, because I mean, I think we think of monotheists and, and it's just almost like more of, more of an Islam type, you know, there cannot be any kind of plurality or anything just one and uh and yet you know just all the stuff you just said what about all of that stuff that's going on so the common first century jew post obviously post-exilic and living in a increasingly pluralistic society with the romans there and the greek influence and i mean what when they went to synagogue on saturday i mean their concept of god what would that have been well, surely the one God. They were monotheists in the, in, in the midst of a pluralistic, mm-hmm. syncretistic world. They had to fight for that. Right. And so, 
We're not budging on that. And yet there wasn't the idea of an individual. The idea of person really evolved out of Christianity, mm -hmm. using that term later on. Mm -hmm. So as a number of scholars, so there's kind of an ambiguous plurality in the one person of God. Now, some were much more rigorously against that. But the fact that the early church could then turn to worship Jesus is quite extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Which leads into that to our next question is how in the world, why, why did those same Jews begin to worship God the Father and then also worship God the Son? Yeah. Well, you have some plurality going on there again. You're asking two questions in one sense about God the Father, but let's go to God the Son for just a minute. Mm -hmm. It is interesting that even the Magi show up worshiping, and in that term worship, there's some elasticity. But when when Jesus walks on water, Peter gets out there and walks with him in Matthew 14, and they sit down in the boat. Here are Jewish believers who bow down and worship him. Mm -hmm. Now, Matthew written especially to Jews, it seems, yeah. that's quite extraordinary. Yeah, And yeah. We, we get a little further, and, well, you see others worshiping our, our Savior as well. So yeah, it ends like that in Matthew well, 28, you know, uh, they, they worshiped him <laughs> before he gives the commission. I often ask in my classes, did Jesus ever explicitly say he was God? And if he did, what circumstances were those in, mm. those statements in? And, and at first, Jesus didn't go around proclaiming himself God, and yet everything he did led that way right. as the Son of God. Mm. So when did he say it? He said it in the teeth of those who wanted to kill him repeatedly. Mm. You know, John 8, they've been arguing a whole chapter. And then he says, before Abraham was, mm. I am. Mm -hmm. So just even listening to you, that can be lost on people who may not have the right understanding of the Old Testament. If you say, I am, what does that mean? mean if jesus is claiming i am like what's the background behind that good point exodus 3 is where the angel of the lord in the burning bush uh, gives us probably the most sacred revelation of god in the old in the whole old testament i am who i am i am the god of abraham isaac and jacob so that i am i am is a way of translating the sacred name yahweh mm -hmm. or what is called the tetragrammaton four letters of hebrew that are the, the absolute center of who god is so when Jesus says things like that, they took up stones to kill him. Yeah, yeah, there's no ambiguity there. He's, yeah. yeah, yeah, they're trying to kill him. Yeah. So the early church begins to worship Jesus the Son. What connectors do you see between the life of Jesus and the early church in Acts grasping this concept of, because it's even fascinating, there's tension even in Matthew 28, because some of them worshiped him but others of them doubted. Yes. So talk about that for a minute. What tension was there? Jesus, you know, he's this incognito God who comes to us. That's Kierkegaard's way of talking. Mm -hmm. here's, a, here's a child born to a, a su in suspect circumstances, uh, then fleeing into Egypt and all that. He comes back to Nazareth, that know-nothing town of Nazareth. And, and it's like, well, who is this, this man who has fishermen mm -hmm. as his followers and tax collectors and others? Mm -hmm. So. Jesus let, there's such beautiful mystery here, I think. Jesus lets the truth of who he is sink in on other people. He doesn't go around, and second, or Philippians 2 says this very clearly, saying, hey, I'm God, you've got to worship me. Rather, mm -hmm. rather he finally asks, uh, who do people say that I am? Mm -hmm. To, of course, Peter, mm -hmm. uh, who do you say that I am? So it's subtly sinking in. How can a human being be God? That's, mm -hmm. that's the astonishing thing of it all. 
And yet they begin to look at the Old Testament again. Now, let me throw in one more. Zechariah 12.10. Here's Yahweh speaking. And he says, and they will look upon me whom they have pierced, pierced yeah. and mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, mm. for a firstborn. Well, who's the him, and how do you pierce Yahweh? Yeah, right. So, the truth of the Old Testament was slowly seeping in, and Jesus told him it would. Yeah. So he said, you're going to have new lenses now to read the Old Testament. So, he was just less obvious than maybe we would have anticipated him to be. And even in the way that he lived his life with uh, healing the blind, with setting captives free, everything, every action that he had was absolutely fulfilling what the Old Testament said of the Savior to come. And so while we look at it, we're like, why isn't he sitting on a throne saying, I'm God, mm-hmm. worship me? But yeah, why didn't he go to Rome and take Caesar's exactly. seat? Yeah, yeah. But it's so obvious when you're able to understand it with the Old Testament. It does come alive, doesn't it? Yeah, I think there's an interesting point there. I mean, I, you know, as an apologist, I get that question a lot of times from skeptics is, hey, you know, if Jesus really was God, why the ambiguity? Why conceal things? Why not Why not shout it from the mountaintops? And as soon as he's born, you know, uh, the baby cries and in between cries, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, you know, like, why not that? I mean, and yet I think that what's what's fascinating is you look at the Gospels and the times where things do explicitly happen, like his baptism, right? One of the accounts says that a voice came out of heaven and said, this is my beloved son, (laughs) you know, like, where's the ambiguity in that? And yet the people who heard it, some of them heard it and others of them said, was that thunder? There's just in the, um, in the midst of this, uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to say, yeah, even if he would have been overt in this in every way that people would have necessarily believed that just doesn't connect because people, God is in front of their face and they don't believe. A lot of people kept trying to ask him, are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus would sidestep that mm-hmm. over and over. Mm-hmm. And where it really came to a head is in that secret meeting or that midnight meeting of the Sanhedrin. Yep. And they're so frustrated because he won't say anything. Right. And finally, the high priest says, I adjure you in the name of the living God. Are you the son of God? Mm-hmm. And Jesus said, you said it. Mm-hmm. And then he says, and when you see the son of man coming in the clouds, and they went wild yeah, because there yeah, was a yeah. passage in Daniel 7. That's the one we talked about. Totally. That son of man given an eternal kingdom who all nations will worship. And they went crazy. And mm-hmm. that, that's what got them yeah, crucified was, in one sense. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's a great point. I was teaching a class just a week ago talking about Jesus' claims about yeah. himself. And I just said, hey, guys, there's something really beautiful about this because they were really frustrated. And I think you could make a strong case to say that Jesus actually had to help them condemn him. I mean, he mm. could have he could have kept his mouth shut, you he know, could've. and who knows what would have happened, but he doesn't. And there's a lot of irony dripping off that, too, right? Because Caiaphas, the, the judge of this secret trial or mock trial, whatever, it's not even a trial, but um, mm-hmm. whatever it is, Caiaphas, who's sitting in judgment of Jesus and Jesus answers him by saying, Hey man, I'm going to judge you one day and all the rest here <laughs> and everybody else. So, that, yeah, that, there's a lot of, um, yeah, it's just ironic. But talking about that, I mean, he uses son of man, son of God. And so how, how would people have heard that term? Did it necessarily mean divinity? What What's kind of the range of meaning there is Jesus? Yeah, Son of God has a lot of spokes coming into the, the axis. Yeah, the yeah. Axle in the middle. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. Because angels are, are called sons of God. Uh, that Messiah would be adopted as, as the Son of God, but that was largely assumed to be the, the physical Son of David mm-hmm. and Davidic uh, hope for, for Israel. 
But Son of God had other implications as well. And obviously, Jesus took it to the highest mark. When he, when he combined Son of God, Son of Man, that brought the highest meaning of both sides. Mm. Now, we're called sons of God yeah. and daughters of God. Yeah. So, so there's, a, there's, there's an ambiguity there. And uh, one of the big questions in a lot of theology and missions has been in the last 10 years, how do you translate Son of God in Muslim idiom translations? Mm. Somebody picks up the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A Muslim will say, I'll put it down, I yeah, can't read that. Right, That's right, blasphemy. Right, right. So how do you translate mm. that, that term? Not easy. N.T. Wright in his book, uh, The Resurrection of the Son of God, talks about three primary meanings there. One is the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, who there's no, if you're just talking about the Messiah, you're just talking about a man, you know, just the son of David. Yes. And uh, he's like, so in that sense, that it retains that meaning that he is the son of God. And yet, I think too, in the in the political climate of the day, the, the society, the other son of God was Caesar, you know? I mean, it, that was on the coin. <laughs> Indeed it was. Yeah. And so, um, I, I think that the fact that Jesus calls himself son of God is also an affront to the, the power structures in Rome, you know, like, because I think the early church picked up on this and said, he's not just the Jewish Messiah, he's also the king of the world. And then thirdly, and I think this is what kind of we uh, will dive more into today, is this, this idea that actually the son of God is this Daniel 7 son of man being presented before the ancient of days who is himself divine and uh i've always uh, thought that those three categories were interesting in they're that helpful, in yes. that it's they're distinct from one another but the term encompasses all of them and uh yeah i found that to be helpful when it really starts to bring clarity to passages like acts one where jesus is being raised into the heavens and his disciples are like all right now's the time right mm -hmm. like you're going to set up the kingdom and so it makes sense when you start to understand the background between some of the terminology that's being used. They they obviously would have thought like, yeah, now's the time you're going to mm -hmm. come rule here on earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the understanding of the kingdom of God and and how that works itself out for sure. So if the Father is God and the Son is God, then who in the world is the Holy Spirit? Oh, we're gonna, <laughs> all right. Uh, well, the Holy Spirit, of course, was that agent of God, finger of God, power of God, presence of God in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So everybody knew exactly what it was. Some were, well, in fact, as uh, Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, one of the commentaries I just read this last week was that uh, maybe the Sanhedrin was filled with jealousy because mm -hmm. they wanted that power and presence of God. And yet, what are these fishermen yeah, from right. Galilee? Yeah, these unlearned are. men, yeah, yeah. But it took time for that to sink in, too. Of course, you have... You have the baptismal formula that Jesus gave us. We're to baptize in the name, mm -hmm. singular, the Hashem, or the sacred name, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And we see times, even in Matthew, there's some fascinating accounts that, that uh, show the place of the Holy Spirit. Remember Matthew, Jesus healed the blind, mute, demon-possessed man, and the, the religious leader said, that's... That's Beelzebub. That's, that's demonic power working. Mm -hmm. Jesus goes on and he says, well, you can blaspheme the Father and you can blaspheme the Son, but you dare not blaspheme the Holy Spirit or you'll not be forgiven in this life or the life to come or mm -hmm. the age to come. Mm -hmm. Whoa. Well, mm -hmm. now who's the Holy Spirit if yeah. you can blaspheme the Father and the Son? Yeah. So the, the reality of the Spirit is kind of seeping in. Mm -hmm. The Spirit desires to glorify Christ and the Father. 
So it's often said, well, that's what he was doing. Uh, he doesn't seek to bring glory to himself. But as we begin to see that the attributes that are the fathers and the sons are the spirits, the activities are his, the titles, he's the spirit of Yahweh, spirit of the son, spirit of Jesus, spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. We go on through all of that and soon we see what Nicaea much later said, mm. he is worthy of worship and glory, just as are the Father and the Son. Yeah, and I think it's hard for people, you know, including myself, to really grasp and put skin on that concept because we, you know, God is Father. You say that, you're like, oh, well, I mean, everybody has a Father, whether he's in your life or not. Like, you have a Father or you see other people's fathers. And we get the concept of son because if you're a male, then you're somebody's son. I mean, I, I'm a son. I'm a, I'm a dad as well, so I have my son. Those are, as we kind of construct our image of God in our own minds, those are easier things to grab hold of and to put, to put skin on. But I think a lot of times people hear the word spirit, and just like we were joking you know, a minute ago, like uh, sometimes people are, think of the spirit as like, well, is this like this wind? You know, <laughs> here comes the spirit, you know? Or there's like this kind of ethereal out there kind of, it's hard to, and so what would you tell somebody about, how do we think about the spirit in, in relational terms in the same good, way as good. the father and the son? You know, when you start looking at the spirit and all he does and says, it, the personality, the, the, the full reality of the spirit, not just being a force, like some of the cults mm -hmm. would say, mm -hmm. but really personal. I mean, he, he tells the church, you know, set aside for me, Saul and Barnabas. Mm -hmm. You see the spirit, this other counselor or advocate, that word other that Jesus talks about mm -hmm. him and presents him in many ways, uh, that means one of the same kind. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is called that parakletos. Mm -hmm. So now Jesus is presenting the spirit four times as that parakletos, as it would be in the Greek. There's uh, there's this other one like Jesus. Now, if the Son is personal, so is the Spirit. And we see that we see that increasingly uh, as we walk through the book of, book of Acts. Uh, I mean, it seemed mm -hmm. good to the Holy Spirit and to us, as they concluded the yeah. Jerusalem Council. All kinds of times when you see the Father say, I am, you see the mm -hmm. Son say, I am, and you see the Spirit speak many times as I, as me. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can insult mm -hmm. the Holy mm -hmm. Spirit. Mm -hmm. You don't grieve a radar beam, like Jehovah's Witnesses portray the Spirit. You grieve someone who loves you. Mm. And when we sin against God, we grieve the Spirit. Yeah. So there's a lot of pieces that come together to show the Spirit really is mm. personal. And He, the Lord, is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. He's called Lord. Mm. And so uh, it's kind of by reflecting on who is Jesus. If Jesus is really God and there's not two gods but one God, then how do we understand the Spirit? Yeah. The yeah. church struggled with that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think today, a, a lot of times I uh, commonly hear just phrases that people use in talking about the Spirit, and they use utilitarian language, as if um, the Spirit is something to be used. Mm -hmm. um, so, we're going to do this, and and somehow, um, whether it's a, a certain way to stir up the Spirit, or how, like, how do we get the Spirit going so that, yes. you know, these things can happen? And I think that in a lot of ways is just, it just diminishes the personhood of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. The Spirit is as much a person as the Father and the Son. Absolutely. And it becomes something that you tap into. Like, that's the language mm -hmm. that they start to use. If we're going to tap into this to yeah. get some release of power. Right, right, right. Yeah, again, utilitarian type yeah. language. 
Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. As always, if you liked it, tell your friends, subscribe, or if you have any questions, email us at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. Hope you all have a great week. Bye. Peace.